Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BW136, The Beginnings of the Modern Age 1662-1991 Period, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 244, June the 5th, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss the beginnings of the modern age, some of the ideas and motives that went into producing the world as we have known it now since roughly 1660, a world which is now dying all around us. Otto, do you want to introduce this subject? Yes, thank you, Rush. The modern age is generally, as you say, dated at around 1660. Columbia University some time ago dropped the study of the Middle Ages and just jumped from ancient Rome to 1660, which they call the Age of Reason. But there is a small group of historians, modern American historians, who are dissenting with that convention. And they're placing the beginning of the modern age in the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we know, generally speaking, the outlines of the, of the situation. Italy became rich. Italy became internationally minded. Italy became sectarian. Italy became corrupt. The faith declined. The decline of the faith even penetrated into the Vatican. And there is a brilliant little book called Sacralizing the Secular, The Renaissance Origins of Modernity by Dr. Stephen A. McKnight of Louisiana State University who felt that the Renaissance introduced two major concepts. The first was the concept of man as a terrestrial god, a god on earth who could shape his own destiny. And the second is the shift that transforms magic into the highest form of natural philosophy. These two concepts form the basis of what the Neoplatonists called human nature and which led them into two directions, two simultaneous directions. One, an adoration of the ancient past and the other, an ambition toward utopian schemes for the future. And we are still caught in those concepts. Yes. Uh, Francis Yates and some others uh, preceded Dr. McKnight in this area, and there are some very fine scholars which are telling us that uh, modern science is more closely related to magic than anything else. That it comes out of a hatred of God. It seeks to sacralize the secular, as McKnight uh, so tellingly says, and as it approaches religion, to use his words, salvation seems to have little to do with everyday life. In other words, 
the church has shoved into a corner and salvation is separated from the workaday world. It's something purely with regard to heaven, no relationship to this world. And of course, we would say that antinomianism began with that attitude. Uh, he sees the work of Voltaire and others as making man his own savior. Oh, yes. The idea was that man could control the elements, all the elements, the tides, the movement of the planets, everything here on earth. The environmentalists believe that. Yes. They believe that we can control the cycle of animals and plants. We can control uh, the elements in the earth. We can use, use them uh, for what purpose, they don't ever say. Mm-hmm. The ultimate goal is usually left unsaid, although utopian thinking comes out of all this. The major point is that they believe that man can control his destiny and his environment and therefore his future. And you know, when you listen to them, you get the idea they believe this. Yes. They get very indignant at things that happen accidentally. I think, for instance, the idea of making the Exxon Valdez accident a criminal thing is based on the idea that we are fundamentally able to control the elements. Well, McKnight says there are three characteristics of modernity. I'm quoting, first, the consciousness of an epical break with the past. Second, a conviction that this break is due to an epistemological advance. And third, the belief that this new knowledge provides man the means of overcoming his alienation and regaining his true humanity. So, mankind must abandon any contact with God in order to overcome alienation, to become truly human. And it's interesting, some of the uh, people he sees as important in this. In the Renaissance, Pico, Ficino, and the new god Anthropos, he calls one chapter. Then he deals with Bacon, Comte, and Marx. As examples. As examples of this... Kind of thinking. Uh, kind of thinking. Yes. The sacred has to be secularized and the humanistic, the man-centered, sacralized. Well, this indeed, this was the real formulation which gave birth to the humanist. Yes. This was really the intellectual origins of the humanists. And it's very interesting that some very modern writers whom you wouldn't consider uh, religious... Umberto Eco, for instance, who wrote the, uh, what was it, The Mystery of the Rose? I've forgotten the exact title. Has given, has written a number of essays along the same lines, pointing out that real alienation began in the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. When power 
substituted for God. Yes, he also uh, sees the centrality of uh, men like Boccaccio and uh, Machiavelli to all this. In Boccaccio, who was a priest, he says, uh, there is a retreat from the world of responsibility. Everything is turned into a joke. Uh, in one story, he describes someone, uh, perhaps the worst man ever born, as someone who triumphs. And as a result, uh, instead of virtue being rewarded, vice is rewarded in Boccaccio very commonly. And uh, this man, the worst man perhaps ever born, winds up being thought of as a saint because of a deception he practices. So what he stresses, Dr. McKnight, is that in the age of modernism, of modernity, appearance replaces reality. Appearance takes precedence. And that's what Castiglione's The Courtier was all about. That uh, you, in battle, played safe unless you saw somebody important watching you. Then you were heroic in your uh, behavior because everything had to be done to be seen. Well, <clears throat> I... We see this today in our own life and in uh, the activity of our own intelligentsia. The one area that is forbidden to discuss is the results of liberal experiments. Mm -hmm. I've just gotten through reading a book on, it's called, subtitled, The Invisible Victims, uh, White male victims of affirmative action. Men who have been turned down for jobs, who have not been promoted because they are the wrong race, the wrong color, the wrong sex. And the individual who wrote the book, the scholar who wrote the book, is a sociologist, and he had to keep his research on the subject secret to himself and some very close friends because he knew that he would get into trouble mm. if anybody knew in a position of authority that he was researching the white male victims of affirmative action because this is a forbidden topic. Yes. They are supposed to be sacrifices to a greater good and to keep their mouths shut. And one of the things he points out is that they have become convinced because of the media barrage and the scholastic barrage and for that matter the church barrage that everyone is in favor of affirmative action at all costs when the real fact is that nobody is in favor of it excepting those that are immediately benefiting but a, an illusion has been created so 
in the same point that McKnight is talking about. The humanist created an illusion of rationality based on impossibilities in the Renaissance, which set a pattern which is continuing to this day. Yes. Well, although it was ostensibly the age of reason, reason, McKnight says, was actually undervalued because nature replacing God became an area of necessity, inexorable uh, immutability, and so on. And therefore man was a victim. And as against this uh, power of nature, reason was nothing. Well, they hold out the hope of controlling nature. This led to the nuclear energy. This is behind these endless experiments. Long time ago, the average man realized that there was enough actual mechanical knowledge in the world to create an ongoing global economy to take care of everybody in the world but it has never been applied. It has never been applied at all because of the power struggle. Another point that McKnight makes, which I felt was very important, is to call attention to what Galileo did in all of this. And I think one of the finest things you've ever written was your essay in the Chalcedon Report some years ago on Galileo. I think it was my first. No, a second. Uh, was second. One, of early, one of the early ones. Yes. Extremely important. Well, Galileo is a very modern figure. He'd lied to the Pope. The Pope had no argument against Galileo's observations because the Church had already accepted them from Copernicus 60 or so years earlier. In other words, the theory was not new. But Copernicus presented it as a theory. And the Pope said, by all means, if you want to present that theory again as a theory, go right ahead. Then Galileo presented it as a law of planetary movement. And he sent advanced copies to other countries so that he couldn't be suppressed in Italy. So what he did was, he, the Pope said, you cannot necessitate Almighty God in other words, you cannot say this is a law that binds God because God cannot be bound by his creatures. And Galileo achieved what McKnight would call a success through sin. He became a living martyr in the hands of the humanist propagandists. And he has served that role ever since. And he was delighted because all he wanted was fame. Let me say before we go on that uh, Stephen A. McKnight uh, is the author, Sacralizing the Secular, the Renaissance Origins of Modernity, published in 1989 by the Louisiana State University Press. This is what he says in one paragraph about Galileo. And I quote, Here in concise form, Galileo has set out a fundamental 
feature of secularization. Theology's reign is restricted to knowledge of salvation. The other areas of inquiry that had been subjected to her rule are now autonomous fields with their own epistemological principles. By implication, Galileo is also revising the long-standing view of reason and its relation to revelation. In scholastic theology, reason's function is to initiate the search for salvation. Galileo removes reason's religious function and establishes it as an autonomous mode of inquiry whose aim is to understand the physical world, to understand how the heavens go, not how to go to heaven, unquote. Very well said. I, I admire that brief book. I can't... Let me, let me add something else that he said. In effect, he's describing... Galileo is a pioneer of secularization. Yes. And he says later on, secularization breaks apart the tension between the secular and the sacred. The root of the sacred is greatly diminished or is eliminated altogether from secular affairs. The higher elements of man's nature, supposedly derived from his divine nature, are minimized or dismissed. In the secular view, the natural world is governed by forces that are indifferent to mankind, and virtue and dignity are measured by the ability to master fortune. Now, there is nothing more lonely than the feeling of being confronted by the forces of nature if you have the idea that they are indifferent to you. Yes. Nothing could break the morale of the human race more than that particular philosophy. Parenthetically, Otto, I think uh, people should know that you did deal with this book in an excellent essay in your publication, Compass, in the second issue. Why don't you tell them about Compass and the address and uh, the cost of subscription? I think they ought to know. Well, I'm delighted with that. Otto Scott's Compass comes out once a month. It's rather brief. It costs $50 a year. You can get a subscription by writing to me at Box 1769, Murphy's, as in Mrs. Murphy's, California, 95247. And I fell upon Dr. McKnight's book. It's part of an essay which is called The Conservative Ethos. It's in the second issue of The Compass, in which I start out by saying, what do conservatives want to conserve? They have never been able to tell me. Yeah. It's a brief. It is six pages, every yes, issue. It's, so it's six close, closely typed pages. Yes. Well, what I found very interesting was that both Bruno and Campanella actually saw themselves as messiahs, humanistic messiahs. 
perhaps the most recent of such humanistic messiahs, according to the historian Seaman, uh, was Woodrow Wilson. Well, we've had a whole long string of messiahs, false, false messiahs. But the modern age, if you want to understand the Renaissance, go to New York and look around. Yeah. There it is in living color. <laughs> and living crime. Yes. And that's what occurred there at that time. Yes. The most interesting thing is that these humanists presided over the most horrible Scenes of depravity and crime, murder, poison. Torture. They reintroduced torture. Yes. It was the humanists who introduced torture. The humanists who sat as judges in the witch trials and blamed the church. Yes. Torture had been a part of Roman law. And with the Renaissance, all of that was revived. It did not exist in the Middle Ages. (coughs) Well, I think the subject is a very important one because uh, the point that both McKnight and other scholars have made is that appearance replaced reality. In fact, McKnight goes so far as to say appearance became the new reality. Well, uh, Theodore Aletus, who uh, has an association with us, and in our recent issue of the journal about a year or so ago on the biblical text, he uh, authored most of the issue. But in his own Bulletin of the Institute for Reformation Biblical Studies, he comments on E. Harbison's The Christian Scholar in the Age of the Reformation. The Reformation was the work of scholars, something we fail to appreciate. Calvin was a scholar, and Luther was a scholar, a professor. And the uh, change that was effected, as uh, Letus and others have noted, and as Harbison did, has been this, that the Middle Ages was a time earlier of scholars, And the age of the great scholars of the Middle Ages was remarkably young. So many of the great men, like Aquinas, were young men. But what happened was that about the time Aquinas died and soon thereafter, a dramatic shift took place. The medieval culture went from a an emphasis on the Bible and the theology as the queen of the sciences to an emphasis on appearance. The mass replaced the thinker. 
and the Mass and the Church became all the more splendid. And of course, with the Renaissance and then in the post-Renaissance era, uh, the churches were made to resemble a theater and the ceiling covered uh, with paintings imitating heaven. Appearance was replacing reality. And what happened with the Reformation was that reality came back. The Bible, the real world, dealing again with the problems of everyday life. And what the age of modernism has done is to create its own uh, appearance, the appearance of uh, state power, the appearance of uh, emphasis on the arts, as the Renaissance did, where the arts supplant religion rather than uh, further it. Well, of course, the arts were used by the Counter-Reformation to regain the ground that it lost. Mm -hmm. uh, the arts have always been a subsidiary area yes. to power because the artists are not, after all, anything else but artists. The, the humanists who arose in the Renaissance introduced what you might call the first enlightenment. Mm -hmm. They secularized and they did a lot of talking about science. They did a lot of talking about the things of this world. And they broke through what they called the superstitions of their time, by which they meant the church. Uh, they never stopped. They were never suppressed. The state became the end of all power in the Renaissance and has remained that way ever since, mm -hmm. excepting for a brief period during the first two generations of the Reformation. And then it was almost as though you couldn't bring men away from this drive for power. They snapped back into it every time. Well, that drive for power goes deep into the Middle Ages. Philip the Fair of France uh, lived in terms of it. And Frederick II, the Hohenstaufen, Holy Roman Emperor, was not even Christian. Well, he was the great forerunner of them all. Yes, yes. But the thing that gets me, of course, is that to this day the word humanist is used to mean somebody who is compassionate. And the fact of the matter is just the opposite. Yes. When we run into a liberal today, he's anything but liberal. Uh, if you dissent, they come at you like the mafia. All holes, all, no holes barred. Good analogy. Well, very few historians deal honestly with the savagery of the Renaissance, the love of torture for torture's sake, the arrogance of people in high places, the contempt for human life, uh, 
One of the uh, plays by Chapman in uh, Elizabethan times as a Renaissance hero uh, shocked when he is in battle wounded amazed that he is going to die because his belief in his godlike powers had become such that while he knew other people died somehow he was not going to well this happened to Jackie Gleason when he had his first heart attack his doctor said Mr. Gleason doesn't seem to understand that he's human mm-hmm. yes Chapman's play Bussy Dangois is a play in which this appears and that was not an uncommon theme Moreover, one of the things we have now swept under the carpet, and I spoke to an historian about it, and he dismissed the subject. The fact that uh, some of the Renaissance uh, lords, nobility in one country after another, felt that now that the new age had dawned, as it were, Practices once uh, considered beyond uh, the pale, such as incest, became routine practices. And a great deal of that sort of thing went on that is suppressed by historians. The Renaissance quest was in one field after another for power, and this is why magic and science were so appealing to them. They saw in magic and science, which at that time were almost inseparable, a means of attaining power in order to be godlike. Well, the white magic, which they considered scientific, and black magic was criminal. And the humanists were the ones who determined which was criminal and which was not. Yes. What they practiced was good. What the herbalists practiced was bad mm-hmm. because they had no license. Mm-hmm. They had they didn't have the university background. They didn't have the learning that went with being a herbalist or whatever. So this began the academic controls and the scientific controls. What is scientifically what is scientifically acceptable and what is not. And we live among these controls today. People actually believe that you cannot learn anything out of the school, outside of school. Yes. That's the only place you can learn anything. That's and it must be in a crowd. It's the poorest place nowadays to learn anything. I had to unlearn a most of what I learned at the university. And a great many others. I talked to Ellsworth McIntyre not too long ago, who went through, he sent me a copy of a talk. It took him 31 years to get his doctorate because, of course, it was broken up by forays into the world of work, interruptions, and so forth. But 31 years after he graduated from high school, he had his doctorate. And he looks at it now as part of his insanity. (laughs) Because he said the only good it's done him is that it gets gets him a certain amount of 
dignified respect from strangers. But the Renaissance is when the scholars really broke out from the control of the church. And that's when science began what uh, Dr. White later called the warfare between science and religion. Remember those two volumes? Which in which science finally succeeded in throwing the clergy out of practically all the universities and colleges by the turn of this century. So we're now living in this shambles that we're living in today, these ruins, intellectual ruins in which we live, as a result of the humanist triumph. We hear a great deal about the so-called medieval witchcraft trials, which is nonsense. They were non-existent in the Middle Ages. They were a part of the Renaissance. That's right. And it was Renaissance men who were interested in persecuting witches. The Renaissance began the Inquisition. Yes. Now, the interesting thing is that the Renaissance man, scholar or politician, was interested in power. And on the lowest levels of society, there was a similar quest for power by a great many helpless uh, people, elderly women who were all alone, and they sought it through magical practices. And as a result, they were persecuted. Uh, After all, the Renaissance leaders and their followers felt that power should be a monopoly at the top. Well, of course, always. And any old woman who practiced uh, herbal uh, powers or anything like that was obviously a terrible person and had to be killed. As bad as a modern midwife. Yes. We are persecuting midwives right now. Or chiropractors. Yes. Or nutritionists. People who are selling vitamin tablets. Yes. They don't have the proper credentials. Mm -hmm. It's a a wonderful game. Yes. But in the process, a lot of people get hurt. We have witch hunts now, only we call it anti-racism. Yes. Well... Today we see the quest for power in various areas, the political sphere, of course, primarily. And modern politics and the globalism, the new world order, are a quest for total power. But then we see on the popular level, in popular culture, the activities of the rock and roll groups. They are Satanists. They're interesting. Every photograph that I see of a rock musical group shows the most evil-looking people. Yes. The dour expression, scowls, black clothes, belligerent stances. And you wonder what this has to do with music. Well, they're cultivating power and they indulge in practices on the side 
and there are authenticated reports by some scholars that human sacrifice is again a part of the world. The Western world as well as the world outside of the West because there is a hunger for the ability to destroy the ultimate exercise of power. Well, there's an awful lot of frustration and hatred walking around. Uh, I talked to a young man here in Murphy's just the other day who said he went to what he calls the valley. Now, I don't really know what part of the valley he was in. It might have been Stockton or Sacramento or Oakland or San Francisco. I don't know which. But at any rate, he took a girl out to a movie or something like that. And when he came out, he said there were a bunch of skinheads around in the area. And they were jousting each other, obviously all looking for trouble. He and this girl crossed the street. He saw another man come by with another young woman and he said one of these skinheads went, went over and without any warning knocked him to the, to the street knocked him to the ground now total stranger yeah, it comes up and hits you for no reason whatever yeah. that's, that's hatred in action aimless hatred and yeah. this has been fostered by the wave of sadism which runs through yes. our public institutions and so forth on the top of all this presiding over it if you remember I once wrote an essay essay called New Crimes about the professionals who play games with innocent people they tell they poll them they tell them lies they experiment with them in all kinds of ways which were once considered criminal but they have the credentials and they can say this is part of research or this is part of therapy well, the interesting thing to me is that more than a few people who are anti-Christian to the core or champions of modernity have singled out as the key figure in the modern age, the Marquis de Sade. Well, he is, he is. Yes. He has admirers. I'm amazed at the number of female scholars that deliver long monographs on de Sade's horrible writings. Yes. Which consists almost entirely of sadistic behavior to women. He has been called Astonishing. the greatest psychologist of the modern age. Well, in that case, Lucifer has a rival. Yes. It's astonishing how twisted things have become yes. in the hands of humanists. When I read about the uh, humanists sitting over a judgment over the witch trials, I was astonished to run into the fact that, according to recent researches, the records have been altered and forgeries have been placed in, in the records. Purportedly ancient parchments have been carefully created and stuck in places where scholars could find them. On the other hand, if you go in to look at some more recent developments, like, for instance, some of the things that happened in World War II, you find the records have been stolen, and they're not available at all. Yes. History has become a punching bag. Well, we have allowed, for example, Turkey to come into 
our national archives and destroy material that calls attention to their massacre of Armenians and Greeks. They've been given access to American archives. Yes. So they could winnow out what they don't like. And they have also subsidized chairs in universities to make sure their lies are propagated. Well, this is what happens when the church lost a competitive position with the university. Mm -hmm. Once the competition is over, the monopoly goes berserk. Mm -hmm. This is a very old phenomenon, and yes. it operates in the field of scholarship and education. I consider American, the American educational establishment the most fragrant and scandalous corrupt institution and most corrupt network in the country. It makes the Pentagon look like choir boys. I think it is interesting that a recent issue of the Spectator from England, the London Spectator, carried an article on how education was far superior when the church handled it and it cost the taxpayer nothing, produced a better society, and uh, how even today those who have the benefit of a church-controlled education go further than those who do not. At the same time, within the past week, in this country, amazingly enough, George Will in a column uh, wrote against public education and called the public schools public enemy number one. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. One of the last people I would have expected to say something like that. It's a very, very uh, biting essay. Well, he's talented. And the politically correct business that's going on in the universities now is beginning to create a reaction. Uh, it's not as much of a reaction as there should be. Uh, I'm inclined to think now that they're creating obedience schools instead of universities because the students and the professors alike know that they will be punished if they don't toe the party line. And the most sinister thing about this is that there is no party. There is simply a set of assumptions which you are supposed to accept without question. I like your description of them as obedience schools because that reminds me of the schools we take our dogs to. I, I have that in mind. <laughs> Well, we, we both know a number of people who were ruined by speaking out in school. Yes. And uh, was it Stanford that wouldn't give Mosher his doctorate right. because he wrote about abortions in China? Yes. And you notice that the subject of abortions in China has been buried ever since? Yes. Nothing more said about Nothing it. Nothing more said about it. Mm -hmm. And they're forced... They're forced abortions. Now they and uh, the fact that we have been financing them uh, in China is also suppressed. Howard Phillips brought that to public attention a few years ago. 
Howard just came back, you know, with Pat Buchanan from the Baltic. Yes. He said that there are Soviet soldiers everywhere in the Baltic states. He said there is no question about the control. He said they took part of the things from his luggage and confiscated them as anti-Soviet material. And the KGB arrested him at one point and marched him down to the uh, border station. And he was there for several hours. He said the army and the KGB are just as much in control as they were under Stalin. A little better so because we are turning the food over to the KGB directly, giving them greater power. So we are the ally of the KGB, and the CIA is working with the KGB now. Yes, uh, and the same program, Crossfire, that Howie spoke, uh, the Colby spoke. Mr. Colby used to be head of the CIA, yes. as you know, and he was very upset with Howie. And... Uh, he disputed what Howie had to say. Colby's argument was that we spend 300 billion a year on the military, and if we can assist the Soviet and reduce the threat and, and bring about peace, we can save all this money. And the amount of money that we give the Soviet was minuscule compared to what we could save by cutting back on our military here. And Howie looked at him very calmly and said, well, you're the one who persistently underestimated the strength of the Soviet military all the years you were in office. And their policy is like subsidizing rapists because they rape. Well, what this is is a policy of fear. Yes. This is, they used to call it appeasement when it was Hitler. This is a policy of supine surrender. This is paying ransom. This is Byzantium distributing gifts to the Mongols and the others. This is cowardice. And I read just today that uh, our president is pleased that things have settled down somewhat in the Soviet Union, so a summit meeting now is more likely. That settling down is simply that we're hearing less about their depredations. We hear less and less about more and more. Mm -hmm. A free press is free not to tell you what it doesn't want you to know. Most people have a strange idea that it is the duty of the media to tell you everything that's important. The media has no such duty. The media only has a living to make and profits to earn in careers to forward, and the media does not have any obligation to tell anything about anything to anybody. It's very strange. There's a sort of a childish assumption throughout this country that the world will always do right by you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I... Uh I've been in, interested of late in following the case of Bill Honig, the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. 
and uh, this came to mind when you spoke of the media. He, through his wife, has set up a separate corporation providing educational aids, which supposedly is totally independent, and uh, Honig has been telling schools to use this material. It would be like the Secretary of Defense having his wife manufacture tanks. Yes. So it's been a very lucrative thing. And the recommendations have gone from coast to coast, by the way. One paper and one paper alone blew the whistle on that. It was the Sacramento Union. The story is an old one by now. Uh, the committee dealing with political corruption refused to touch it. It's in the hands of the Attorney General of the state now. Whether he will do anything is questionable. Every newspaper in the state has killed the story. They've ignored it. They've ignored it. Well, certainly. And the California Magazine, which has had some prestige, came out with an attack on the Sacramento Union in the newest issue. Well, I a ridicule of it. I understand the San Diego Union is uh, researching the San Diego Union, so Sacramento Union, so it can attack it. There was one interesting incident that came up that Farah told me about. He's the editor, as you know. He said a movie came out. I've forgotten the name of the movie right now. Yes, I know the one. Do you? What was it? Uh, it was about the uh, trial of the Hollywood oh, Six. Oh, yes, yes. That's who it. were communists. Guilt by innocent, you know, guilt yes. by association or yes. something of that sort. Well, as we know, the record is nobody except communists were pulled up before that committee. That's right. But in any event, a young man movie reviewer at the Sacramento Union, liberal, wrote a very fulsome, flattering review of this false movie. And the following day, Joe Farrer, the editor, sat down and wrote a review pointing out that it was a fantasy and that no such things ever occurred and giving his opinion of the movie. And he got calls from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all over the country wanting to know how he could do such a thing to his own movie reviewer. In other words, the idea of having two views of a single movie, both out in the open, was just considered a violation of the code. And that was the takeoff point for the California Monthly. Is that so? Yes. They considered that an outrage? An outrage. I mean, he printed a man's review even yes. though he didn't agree with it. Yes. But nevertheless, to have an alternate review was an outrage. How many other newspapers will do that? Well, how many other editors would have printed a review they didn't agree with? Yes. Not, not any that I know. Not any that I know, because one of the things about newspaper work is that it's an unlimited monarchy. Yes. And I've seen some very hard men crawling before the city desk. Most journalists are not brave inside the city room. Well, of course, it's an inquisition, and the right of the uh, Sacramento Union, the okay. oldest daily in, the in California, its right to exist is being questioned. 
Because it has a different view. Yes, because it breaks stories that no one else will cover because they are unfriendly to the establishment. So much for the free press and the First Amendment. This First Amendment of ours is a great legend, a great myth, you know. It's uh, the part about the free exercise of religion somehow or another never seems to get mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting that one of the Supreme Court justices admitted that they have probably endangered freedom of religion. That was O'Connor, wasn't yes, it? Yes, O'Connor. Yes. Yes. Belatedly. Yes. Belatedly. They are now, they're beginning to, they should wear pajamas instead of robes on that bench because they're, they're beginning to strike me as men who have been sleeping too long and have just gotten out of bed. Yes. They're, they're making rulings uh, at all sixes and sevens. Well, a few years back, and I do not recall which justice it was, was uh, awakened at night by someone important who came to his door. Oh, I remember that. That was Warren Berger himself. Ah, yes, you're right. He, his, they rang his doorbell at midnight, and he came to the door, and he had a pistol in his yes. hand. Yes. <laughs> so, the benevolent kind of world he imagined in his uh, opinions in the court. He knew better. He knew better. He knew better. They're hypocrites. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. When I was on the San Diego Union, I read an article came over the broad tape that Mr. Berger took a plane from Washington to New York when he was Chief Justice, and people were smoking on the plane, and he complained about it, and they didn't pay any attention to him. So when he got back into his office in Washington on this official stationery, he wrote a letter of complaint, and he got a fulsome apology and something would be done about it. And the executive editor of the union gave it to me and said, maybe that deserves an editorial comment. I said, I'd love to do it. And I said, any man who could get off a plane in New York City in that sewer and still be indignant about smoking a cigarette is an ass. Yes. Of course, they didn't print the editorial, needless to say, Uh but it was a great pleasure to write. Uh Yes. Well, we've uh, wandered a bit from... From modernity. From modernity, but uh, perhaps we haven't. I don't think we have. We are talking about modernity. We could bring a man from the Renaissance, Bruno or one of the others, Vico, from the Renaissance, and put him here today, and he would feel at home. Yes. With uh, homosexuals everything. doing as they please. Everything, with which every they did kind. then. Yes. Which yes. they did. They exalted them then. Yes. And they had astrologers, and here you pick up the newspaper, and there's a horoscope in every yes. paper. And, well, and Nancy Reagan can tell you all about it. I mean, <laughs> they had a court astrologer. The popes had astrologers. And that came with the Renaissance. They did not have them earlier. Oh, no. Of course not. 
But you know, the church is just as much an instrument of the age as anything else. It's astonishing, in some ways, I think, humbling to realize how much we are affected by the age in which we live. Yes. Well, our time is almost up, Otto, but I want to get back to the point that Harbison and others and Letus made, that appearance replaces reality when an age is on the skids. That's true. We need and, a new Reformation. Uh, and Reformations take place when scholars begin to work. And that's what we're doing. This age is dying all around us. And we have a new age to create. And I don't like the term new age because of the connotations, but a Christian era that has to be ushered in. And it isn't going to come about because of fearful men or half-hearted men. As Dorothy was observing today, if half the people who read our report tithed, it would create several forces in our country today. That's if true. they tithed intelligently. No question. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com